Larry who? Never heard of her. What sort of a man is he? Kick from Bama. A man like any other, but more so. Well, I thought he was dead. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Let's light this candle. Light this candle indeed. Welcome to the Larry Alex Taunton Show. It's a great to be with you uh, on this uh, this beautiful day, at least where I am. Uh, we don't have any video today because I'm calling in from outside um, of the country. Uh, eventually, by the way, this show will be aired on NRB. Uh, you can find that on um, DirecTV. I don't know if it's on Dish or you know, one of those other networks or not, but you'll find it there. You'll also find it, you know, on our website at LarryAlexTaunton.com and a variety of other places. Um, and, uh, you know, since the pandemic began, um, I have been in, I think, 12 countries. Uh, in fact, I was quite literally in the Sahara Desert with Bedouins um, when you know, this, this whole thing really, really started ramping up, um, the, uh, the, the pandemic. And it was very interesting to me because here I am, um, on a continent and in a country where so many people die such early, unnatural and unhappy deaths, but because all these Bedouins, um, they had cell phones they were watching CNN and BBC and, uh, it was, it was fascinating and disconcerting to me to see how quickly um, they could be stirred into great fear over the pandemic. So, you know, here you are literally riding a camel out in the Sahara Desert, but you're wearing a mask. Now, I want you to picture this with, with me, just how insane, you know, this is. To say nothing of the fact that nearly a million Africans die every year of malaria. Uh, this is to say nothing of civil war, of dysentery, of loads of other um, diseases, violent crime, um, all of these uh, terrible ways that a person can die. You know, there was a movie, what was something like uh, so many ways you could die in L.A. Well, there's a lot of bad ways that you can die in Africa. But because they had cell phones, they were all terrified of the pandemic. Anyway, from Egypt, you know, I was in Morocco. I was all over um, Europe. Uh, I was in, uh, let's see, I was in France. I was in Portugal. I was in the UK. By the time I got to France and the UK, everything was dead. I mean, complete lockdowns, almost nothing going on. I was stuck. Um, Lori and I were stuck in Spain for quite some time. She'd come over to um, to meet me um, there, and then we ended up being you know, um, stuck in the country for a time because they went into lockdowns and flights were being canceled and this kind of thing. Eventually, we got back to um, the United States. And since then, I've also been all over South America and elsewhere. Now, this is all throughout the pandemic. Now, I'm telling you that for a simple reason, and that is this, that the great unreported story of the pandemic of the last couple of years is the suffering of common people around the world. Um, most, or I won't say most, many Americans um, are wholly unaware of this, and often many Christians are because they're very insulated from it economically. Meaning, if you're a guy who has an, uh, an automatic deposit and you can work at home, I mean, what do you care? Uh, everything maybe just continues to go along from your point of view, and everything seems fine. But I'm really quite startled by the lack of concern for just ordinary people. Uh, I believe the protests that we saw of the truckers in Ottawa, um, the truckers who drove to D.C. and were kind of forgotten because of everything that's happening in, uh, in Ukraine, um, these peaceful protests were efforts by common people in the United States. They tend to be red staters who um, are expressing incredible concern about their jobs, the economy, um, covid passports, uh, efforts to uh, surveil them in, uh, in their daily life and just about everything, um, a loss of freedoms um, as a result of the pandemic. I mean, 
all, everybody that I know who thought that lockdowns made sense, and they never made sense. Um, we now know this. Um, you know, you're increasingly having, you know, epidemiologists, um, other researchers, scientists who are finding their voice and they're willing to come out and say this, this didn't do any good. Uh, just like the masks. I mean, it's just a, it's just a way of, of signaling your virtue. It's a kind of secular righteousness. It's a way of saying I'm a good person because I do this, you know, maybe, uh, maybe there are, are self-righteous Christians who, uh, who display it by not doing, you know, particular things. Well, they're, well, secular people, um, do the very same things. There's, there's a religious streak in us all, a self-righteous streak in us all, and it finds expression in different ways. And so, you know, maybe with a Christian, they uh, say, well, I, I, I don't wear dresses like this, or I don't drink, or I don't smoke, or I don't go to rated R movies as a sign of my righteousness. Uh, the secular type may say, well, I recycle. You know, I'm in favor of social justice, and I wear a mask, and I'm in favor of government lockdowns and this kind of thing. So I wanted to go around the world, uh, to different parts of the world, and literally go around the world. I did to write my last book, Around the World in More Than 80 Days, but I but haven't done that, you know, since um, the pandemic. But I have been, as, as I say, roughly a dozen countries. It's maybe more, maybe, maybe, maybe one or two less. Um, to see what's happening with ordinary people. And what you see um, is absolute devastation, economic devastation that it is, that is leading to a, um, uh, a, a global catastrophe for ordinary people. Um, so many people have managed to climb out of abject poverty into um, some something something not as bad as that. I won't say a middle class, but by American standards, certainly not a middle class. But out of abject poverty in the third world uh, into something slightly better, only to be knocked right back down into it. And I would suggest to you that this problem isn't millions; it's billions of people, and it's not being reported. And that's because you know, the beltway types, um, the people that you are hearing uh, typically on the news, that you're hearing on the radio, that you're hearing in your pulpit very frequently, just simply are so insulated from it, so far from it, they have no idea. Now, one of the things that we like to say that we do at Fixed Point Foundation, you know, the, the tagline, you know, for my own brand, you know, LarryAlexTaunt.com is that I'm your man in the field. And what, what I mean by that is I'm not simply pontificating from, from CNN headquarters in D.C. or in Atlanta or from inside the Beltway or from, um, from Manhattan where you have really no idea what the real world is like. I don't think Nancy Pelosi has any idea. I don't think Joe Biden, both lifelong politicians, have any clue what life is like for average Americans. I don't think they know what it's like to stand in line. I don't think they know what it's like to be in a, you know, an honest to goodness um, traffic jam. I don't know, think they know what it's like to ride public transportation, um, to be searched at the airport, um, to be, you know, any of this. They, they're, they just don't have a clue to fear for their own jobs, their own livelihoods, um, for their own children, uh, or even to be subject to the laws that they would so um, casually pass. I mean, these are the same people who have locked away as if there's a suspension of the writ of habeas corpus. Um, the so-called, um, you know, insurrectionists of January 6th without trial, by the way, they've been locked away for 14 months. And Jesse Smollett, Jesse Smollett, who endeavored to incite hate among an entire country served what a few days in jail. And now he's back out again. So, you know, this is where we find ourselves. But I, I just want to put an emphasis on the fact that that ordinary people, common people, both in the United States um, and all over the world are suffering um, terribly in some cases as a result 
of policies that have locked down, um, you know, locked them into their own homes, uh, supposedly for their own safety, which is complete nonsense. And um, that often led to the loss of um, of their jobs, um, of their businesses. I've listened to story after story of people in South America, in Africa, in Europe, and in the United States of people who uh, were desperate for an income because they were in they were in service industries. Maybe they're a waiter. Uh, maybe they were in the tourist industry. Maybe they're a bus driver. Maybe they're a taxi driver. Maybe they worked in the hotel industry. And suddenly, those businesses lost everything um, because uh, people weren't allowed out, um, or because um, you know people were fearful because media had had stirred such hysteria over all of this. And again, if you're somebody who who doesn't get out enough and rubbing elbows with just ordinary people, you're you're kind of clueless about all of this. And um, we really make a, a point at Fixed Point Foundation. I make a point in my own work um, of engaging with people from, you know, various ranks of society. Um, yes, I might find myself, you know, uh, doing an event at a, you know, at a, at a university or, or uh, you know, in, in a, you know, some beautiful location. But at the same time, we make a point of engaging with just regular people in the third world as well. And it gives you a very different perspective. I wish that I could take many of our congressmen on both sides of the, uh, of the aisle and many of our um, people in media and just show them what the real world is like that they're missing because there's a, a place in which they're just quite clueless uh, about all of it. I move from that to the Russo-Ukrainian war. Um, you know, since the podcast uh, that we put out, uh, the very first podcast just a few days ago, still relevant, by the way, you can still go and listen to that. You can find it on Rumble, on YouTube, on uh, um, uh, Apple, you know, podcasts. Uh, you can find it there. You can, of course, certainly find it on our, our website. But there's been just a, you know, a few more things that have happened since that time. I have a piece out today in the Daily Wire, and it's called Is, Is Putin Crazy? Or I, actually, I think they gave it a slightly different title. Uh, Putin is crazy, like all of America's enemies, and uh, that's uh, that's an outgrowth of the very first podcast um, that that we produced just a few days ago. You can you can find that at Daily Wire. I think you could probably find a link to it from our own website. Unfortunately, they put it behind a paywall, but I think you won't have to pay ninety nine cents or something like that for it. And I don't know how their subscription um, works, but just know that it's not behind. We didn't put it behind a paywall. They they did that. But something that I'm noticing now that the the, the way the public conversation has changed um, every day is it's becoming mob-like hysteria. I mean, if you express on social media even mild caution about involvement in a war between Russia and Ukraine, you're going to be shouted down as a Putin propagandist. I keep being called a Putin propagandist um, by people um, who see all of this strictly in terms of black and white, strictly in terms of black. There is no nuance. There's there's nothing here to be discussed. There's nothing here uh, to be evaluated. There's no caution. It's just a headlong push into war. The fascinating thing to me about it is that it's largely being driven Though not exclusively, there are many people on the right. I mean, uh, Prager U, you know, sounds to me like Dennis Prager and Prager U, who I've invited to conversation, by the way, about this, seem to me to be following the same path. Um, there are others, you know, who are um, ablaze. Uh, the people at the blaze seem to me there's quite a few people over there who are pushing in the same in the same direction. So I want to talk just a little bit about this. Um, to express concern over the possibility that we could end up in World War III does not make you a, um, a Putin propagandist or a Putin supporter, which I certainly, you know, am not. You know, one of the funnier accusations that's been made against me um, recently is that you have had people on, you know, social media saying, ah, you know, you, you're an employee of Fox News. I see that you work for Fox News. 
What's funny about that is I have done a lot of work for a lot of networks. Um, I've been on Al Jazeera. I've been on uh, BBC. I've been on MSNBC, which is about as far to the left as you can get. Um, I have been on NPR. Um, I've been on Al Jazeera. I've been on CNN International. I've been on CNN. I've been on CNN far more than I've ever been on Fox. And I actually enjoy my work for CNN more than I ever did for Fox. But I want to be clear on this particular point. I've never been paid a dime, not a dime, by any of them. I am not a Fox employee, a Fox News employee. Uh, furthermore, and I probably shouldn't say this publicly, I don't watch Fox News. I don't watch CNN. I don't watch any of them um, because I find that um, for the most part, I will watch clips of shows here and there that I do find helpful. I like Tucker Carlson. I think Tucker Carlson has a very good read um, on the, um, the situation. But uh, to suggest that I'm some kind of employee and see, this is what people do is that they automatically try to put you into a box. You say something they don't like and they go, aha, well, this means that you're a, you're, you're a Trumpist or you're this or you're that. They want to label you. Um, I voted for Trump. I don't agree 100% with everything you know Donald Trump does. I, I have not paid attention to his position on everything that's happening in this. And that's because I think for myself. Uh, so I don't, um, you know, I listen to a variety of, uh, of sources. I read a variety of sources and I form my own opinion. So um, those kinds of accusations are just silly accusations. But two things can be true here. And, and they are, by the way. The Ukrainian people, not their government, by the way, but the Ukrainian people can be victims and Vladimir Putin can also be wicked. Both are true. Um, and there's a third that's true. The Ukrainian government is corrupt as it can be. Uh, every bit as corrupt as the, uh, as the Russian government. Um, these are not, uh, Ukraine is not the ally we need, and Russia is not the enemy that we want. And uh, I think engaging ourselves um, in this war is, uh, is very foolish and could easily slide into World War III. And a question that nobody seems to be asking is, what about China? You know, I keep seeing um, people saying, we've isolated Russia. Russia's isolated. Now, that kind of strategy is what you come up with when you're a millennial, when your advisors are millennials, and the idea of your credit card not working at Starbucks terrifies you. The Russians are not going to be defeated because you seek to use the cancel culture with them. Um, they just simply won't. Almost half the casualties in World War II, roughly 55 million people, Almost half of that 55 million were Russian casualties. The Russians lost more people in the, in the battle um, for uh, Leningrad, modern-day St. Petersburg, than we lost in the entire war. Now think about that for a moment. Um, they lost more people in a battle for a single city than we lost in the entire war. Um, in World War II, they did not have enough weapons. So do you know what they did? They would send groups of men, you know, charging across a battlefield, say maybe a couple of them without weapons, and they would tell them to pick up the weapon of the dead man in front of him. When he gets shot, you pick up his rifle and you keep going. And then when he gets shot, number three, you pick up the weapon and you keep going. These are people who are going to scare very easily. So that's worth bearing in mind. The Russian people know suffering, um, and they're a deeply patriotic people. And uh, I don't, I don't think canceling, you know, their uh, their Amazon and Netflix memberships are going to be sufficient. But I also don't agree with the the narrative that suggests that they're that cut off, and that is because they are backed to the hilt by China. I believe that what we are seeing between Russia and China is comparable to the um, always oh, gone out of my 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 head in the uh, the the Molotov Ribbentrop Pact of 19, 1939. Um, just 
just a reminder of your history prior prior to World War II beginning in September, September 1st of 1939. Um, Russia signed a 10-year non-aggression pact with Germany. That is to say, Stalin and Hitler entered into an agreement with one another. Now, this was utterly shocking to the West, to the Western powers, because they were sure that as Germany's power was you know, rising and becoming more threatening, that Stalin would want to align himself with France and Britain um, because you know, he, would, he would want to seek alliance with other countries that were also likewise being threatened by Germany. Well, that isn't what he did. Instead, um, his foreign minister, um, uh, Molotov, and uh, Germany's foreign minister, uh, Ribbentrop, entered into negotiations and they signed a 10-year non-aggression pact in 1939. And that shocked the Western powers. Uh, it utterly shocked them. And see, what Hitler was seeking to do by, by doing this was to neutralize Russia. He did not want to be in a two-front war. He didn't want to have to fight Russia on the one hand and France and Britain on the other. So the two of them agreed that they would divide Poland, which they did, and um, and then Hitler invaded um, you know, May 10 of 1940, uh, shortly, shortly after this uh, uh, agreement was signed, he invaded France. And in 46 days, France was defeated. And uh, then, of course, he turned right around and much to Stalin's um, shock. Uh, his, you know, it's interesting, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the novelist, in his, uh, in his novel, The First Circle, he has a great, a great line um, in there. And I'm, I'm only paraphrasing it. I can't recall its exact words, but he, he saw it about Stalin. And he says, Stalin, a man who never trusted anyone, he didn't trust a god to whom he was forced to, um, you know, to bow in seminary. He didn't trust his mother and father. He didn't trust any of the old Bolsheviks. He didn't trust Lenin. He didn't trust his wife. He didn't trust his children. And yet, while the whole world watched, he trusted one man and one man alone. And that man was Adolf Hitler. It's a, it's a great passage in Alexander Solzhenitsyn's uh, novel, the first circle, uh, Solzhenitsyn, you know, Russian dissident who, who won the Nobel Prize for literature. But anyway, um, he did trust him. And so he was absolutely shocked when that invasion came. Well, what does that have to do with, um, with the present time? I think we're seeing something fairly similar now in that Russia and China, Putin and Xi, have kind of signed their own non-aggression pacts. I think it's a quid pro quo. Um, Xi has agreed to back Putin and Russia. Uh, this is why they're not, by the way, isolated. They're 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 getting um, supplied by the Chinese, and uh, and I think that the quid pro quo looks something like this: um, We'll support you um, with your invasion of Ukraine. We'll look the other way. We'll support you on the, uh, uh, you know, in the United Nations, um, and we'll support you in the court of public opinion. And then you'll do the same for us when we take Taiwan. Now, I'm, I'm making a prediction here. I'm not alone in making this prediction, but I believe we're going to see uh, the Chinese move on Taiwan. Uh, the same kind of saber rattling that we have been hearing for quite some time out of Putin before his invasion of Ukraine is the same thing that we're, we've been seeing for decades, by the way, out of the Chinese towards Taiwan. And what would the United States do for the Taiwanese? I, I dare say nothing. We did nothing about Hong Kong. What a wonderful city Hong Kong was. I was there as all this um, was beginning and um, so tragic to see that city, uh, um, a democratic city, a city with such strong um, freedom impulses, crushed under the uh, the jackboots of the Chinese, and I think they're going to do the same thing um, to Taiwan. But they have kind of an agreement um, between each other, and um, 
So this idea that Putin is somehow, you know, he's surrounded, he's cut off from the world, I guess, because he can't access his Netflix account, uh, is going to really scare him off um, and going to defeat him in Ukraine. I don't think so. I think that uh, that Ukraine is effectively crushed already. But what is the concern? I say that, you know, that I'm expressing great concern. I'm expressing great concern over the fact that there's a rush towards war. One of the worst um, on social media that I've seen is former congressman and presidential candidate Joe Walsh. Not to be confused, by the way, with the Joe Walsh of the Eagles. I have no idea if congressman, former congressman Walsh, can play the guitar. I don't know if he sings Hotel California in the shower or not, but I will tell you this. He's not to be confused with the guy who you know, lives in hotels and tears out the walls and has, a, has accountants who pay for it all. Um, not the same guy. Joe Walsh came across my Twitter feed because um, somebody was responding to him or, you know, had retweeted him. I, I don't recall, but I started, you know, watching some of the things that he was saying. And in one of his tweets, this is what he says. He says, Zelensky, good, Putin, bad, Ukraine, good, Russia, bad. So I decided to engage him. Now, bear in mind, you know, I've got you know, what, you know, 15, 20,000 Twitter followers. I, I'm not a, you know, a heavyweight on social media. Um, former congressman here, I don't know, 200, 300,000 followers. And often one of the, uh, the underhanded tactics of people like this is when they, they can't really respond to you with a, with a clear, rational argument, they just serve you up to their followers. Um, I, I don't know, you know, how it works on other platforms like Facebook and Instagram, um, but but that's the way it works on Twitter. So that I can just simply retweet you to my followers and let them maul you, for instance. And this is what people like this do. This is what David Frum does. Uh, this is what many of these people on the left do. They just call you names or let their let their um, you know followers um, do that for you. And I was expecting that, you know, from him. I'm used to being called names. I'm used to being uh, on the tack, not my first radio. But I decided to just, just persist and um, try to engage him in a rational conversation for the simple reason that a guy like this is misusing his platform to stir war hysteria. So I asked a simple question. Um, have you ever been in either country? Um, he avoided the question. He did engage me in uh, um, in some back and forth on um, Twitter, but he never answered that question, which to me is the answer. Uh, you know, if, if he could, if he could offer that authority, I think he would. And the answer is, you know, no, he hasn't. So he doesn't really know anything about Ukraine. He doesn't really know anything about Russia, about either country, and. Uh, I dare say three weeks ago, many people, many of you who are listening, um, but certainly uh, many of these people who are on social media, who are spouting their opinions so vociferously and who are now sporting the, uh, you know, the Ukrainian flag. It's, it's the new, by the way, virtue, um, you know, sign. It's, it's not the mask anymore. It's the Ukrainian, the Ukrainian flag. I heard uh, this morning while I was listening to sports radio. I uh, went to a commercial and um, some symphony, I don't remember, you know, whose symphony orchestra it was, as having a big benefit concert, you know, to support Ukraine. I'd be interested to know where that money's going. Um, I hope it's going to the orphanages of Ukraine. I hope it's going to the poor people of Ukraine. I hope it's going to refugees of this war to the common Ukrainian people. Um, I hope it's not going to anybody in government. I hope it's not going to any of the elites. Um, uh, cause they don't deserve it. And I'll come back to that, um, for, for just a moment. But, you know, I wonder three weeks ago, how many of these people who are now calling for war could have found Ukraine on a map? How many of them had ever heard of Zelensky? How many of them knew anything about Russia, about Ukraine? And they're all now hailing Ukraine as, uh, as some kind of um, beacon of virtue, of democracy, of freedom. Um, one woman said to me on, on Twitter after calling me a number of vile names, 
um, she said that Ukraine is the world. It is um, democracy, the embodiment of democracy. No, no, it isn't. Uh, I've been there. Uh, I've been there many times. I've been in both of these countries roughly a dozen times. And they are just as corrupt as they can possibly be. Uh, these are two mafias um, that are at war um, with one another. And again, um, you know, Putin is an evil man. I can't claim to know a great deal about Zelensky. I can claim to know something about his government, and his government is corrupt to its core, to its black-hearted core. The Ukraine, Ukraine is not a great country. It's a, it, it's, it's a pretty crappy country. Uh, Russia is too. Both of them are. And um, freedom as we know it in the West is alien to both of those countries. And all the people who are calling for these things, who are you know, demanding no-fly zones, which, by the way, would spark World War III, um, and it won't be these people. It won't be Congressman um, you know, Joe Walsh, not of the Eagles, uh, who will be fighting this war. Uh, probably not his children. I don't know if he has any, but they'll probably end up with some, you know, soft position like John Kerry got and like Al Gore got. Um, no, um, it'll be your children. It'll be my children. Um, as Jean-Paul Sartre put it, um, when rich people go to the wars, the poor people who die. And, uh, and that's what will happen. And be, be very clear on this, ladies and gentlemen. A, a world war with Russia, it will uh, will dwarf Vietnam, Korea, the wars in Afghanistan, the Persian Gulf, um, the Middle East. Um, it will dwarf all of that. And I come back to China. Do you think China is really going to be doing nothing while the United States and uh, and Russia are at war with one another, which mean, would mean, of course, a general European war? Uh, possibly a nuclear war. Do you think China is doing nothing? I think China becomes the only potential winner of a war like that. Uh, if if this is a chessboard, it's like China is that queen that is that is sitting um, across the board that has been forgotten, um, but is an ominous presence that will make itself felt at the right time. Um, to mix mix my uh, my metaphors here, um, and they're watching all of this uh, like vultures, ready to pick clean the bones of both sides in a um, in a U.S. Russia war, um, where there's there's no winners except potentially, as I say, um, the Chinese. And I guess maybe it's just been so long since we've experienced a world war that some people are kind of excited about the possibility of it. You know, I recall uh, my son Zachary saying to me that he felt like uh, his generation wanted to live an Instagrammable, movie-like life. That they're 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 you know ready to take selfies of, uh, on on the battlefields. They're ready to post to their Instagram accounts, you know, their heroic deeds and the things that that they're doing. Um, I regret that there are not more veterans of the Second World War still alive to offer warning and caution. And lest I sound here like a pacifist, um, I'm not. You know, I'm a child of the military. Uh, my, my father was a career soldier. Um, I definitely believe, I mean, my life, my career is spent fighting for things that I believe in. But I don't believe in rushing in headlong into a, uh, into a world war willy-nilly. Um, and definitely not for Ukraine. Uh, definitely not for Ukraine. Um, as um, as I pointed out in the previous show, uh, Ukraine, um, their government not only is their government corrupt, but their uh, their government has behaved extremely foolishly. The United States sparked this war. Um, we provoked it. Putin invaded. Yes, he he officially started it. But when we decided um, to um, to engage. Uh, very actively in Ukrainian politics, engineer a coup d'etat in that government to um, topple a pro-Russian government for a pro-American government. When we invited Ukraine to join NATO, um, Putin here sees himself as acting uh, defensively. He simply is not willing to have a country that he considers vital 
that, by the way, Russian rulers since time immemorial have considered Russia as utterly vital to their survival. You know, words and phrases like, uh, you know, like breadbasket and warm water port appear repeatedly in, um, in Russian history. Catherine the Great referred to Ukraine as Little Russia. Um, no less than 16% of Ukrainians want to rejoin with Russia. They share an awful lot in common culturally. Uh, their political cultures definitely share a lot in common, extremely, extremely corrupt. And um, I don't think that the United States wants to engage in this. And I think if we did, we would discover very clearly, uh, excuse me, very quickly, that this isn't this isn't what the media um, and our government leaders would have us believe that Ukraine is not what we've been led to believe. Let me let me use an example. The JFK, uh, John F. Kennedy um, administration, he had decided that America needed a place. America needed a place to demonstrate its power. Um, we had bought into um, uh, George Kennan's theory called the domino theory, this idea that that communism bleeds into one country after another and those countries fall like dominoes. And eventually it would, it would engulf the world and it would um, encircle the United States. You'll recall those videos, as those of you who are older that you know, the documentaries that, that we saw again and again, you know, that they showed a map and it showed communism bleeding into one country after another. So that was the domino theory and that we needed to stop communism from knocking, you know, over one domino, one country after another. So Kennedy had decided that Vietnam was the place to, to um, demonstrate America's, you know, power. So we um, play a role in installing the very corrupt Catholic president, no Dindiem, no Dindiem. And, um, you know, the, Vietnam, South Vietnam, not a, uh, um, a Catholic country. Um, Kennedy, of course, was, and we thought this is our guy. We're going to get behind him. And so... The Kennedy administration, assisted by the media, fed the American public this image of South Vietnam as the beacon of freedom, of enlightenment, of democracy. Now, exactly like what we're seeing, people are being said uh, about Ukraine. The problem was it wasn't true. But Americans didn't know anything about Vietnam. Um, other than what they were being told, you know, by their media, by their leaders. And um, so Americans bought that, that, um, you know, narrative. They believed it, that the South Vietnamese people needed to be saved by us because they were, they were um, true blue, you know, Democrats um, to their core. Now, culturally, we shared nothing in common with Vietnam, nothing at all. And we did not understand um, the Vietnamese mind. We did not understand their history. We did not understand their culture, not even a little bit. But, okay, this is the line that the American people um, were fed. Well, in 1963, I believe it was, I think it was in June of 1963, just months before Kennedy's assassination, a Buddhist monk famously, infamously, some of you have seen these images. If not, you can, you know, do an internet search and, you know, find it very quickly. A Buddhist monk went into the streets of Saigon, into a busy intersection. Media was, you know, was there ready to capture the moment. He sat down very calmly in the street. He dumped gasoline all over himself and he um, immolated himself right there. And the media captured it. Uh, in film, and those images were front page all over the Western world, shocking um, people in the West. You know, why would a man do this? How and why would he do such a thing as this? Well, again, it's an indicator of how little we understood 
who these people were and their thinking. But Kennedy, true story, Kennedy, horrified by the act of this man, asked his own advisors, why would he do that? And they said, well, he's a Buddhist monk and he's protesting um, South Vietnam's um, President No Dinh Diem's pro-Catholic anti-Buddhist laws. Laws, by the way, that we helped institute in South Vietnam. JFK's uh, own administration had, had helped institute those laws, and they were very discriminatory towards Buddhists. So this man was protesting that. Now, Kennedy had no idea until that moment that roughly 70% of South Vietnam's population was Buddhist. No idea. Yet in spite of his ignorance, he had already committed the, the United States to a long, costly, and bloody war. My own father, uh, who had already served in one war, was sent over as one of the first, as part of the first wave of quote-unquote military advisors to South Vietnam. A job, by the way, that he hated. And he hated it, A, because he had no authority. All he could do was advise. I wouldn't do that. I would do this, you know, this kind of thing. Secondly, he hated it because he felt that South Vietnamese were corrupt. Um, their military was corrupt and that they were extremely unprofessional soldiers. Moreover, he saw them torture um, prisoners on more than one occasion. But he was powerless to do anything about it, all the while our media was portraying the South Vietnamese. Now, this, this narrative would change over time as the American people became tired of that war and as the truth began trickling out and then there were war demonstrations and this kind of thing. But initially, the American public was fed this line um, about what a noble character No DM was. Eventually, by the way, um, CIA would assist in his overthrow. And, um, you know, these... This, this is the way wars begin, and all I'm trying to to, to say here to our listeners is uh, is this: um, this isn't. You know, I'm not being pro Putin. I'm not being pro pro Russia. Russia is a deeply corrupt country um, with a sinister history, but so is Ukraine. And um, if you're buying into this narrative that. Ukraine is wonderful, that their government is wonderful. Um, you, 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 you are clueless, clueless about what you're talking about. Don't go around posting crap like that on social media. It's a lie. It isn't true. And we can very easily find ourselves in big, big trouble if we continue going down this road. I want to I end by telling you an interesting little story about some of the, the kind of people who are calling for this. Now, now, bear in mind that many of them, they're not exclusively on the left, by the way. They're not exclusively Democrats who are keep pushing us in the direction of war, beating the war drums. There are loads of Republicans who are doing this, too. Lindsey Graham um, is one of them. Marco Rubio is another. Um, in fact, I dare say that Republicans and Democrats are more united than they have been in many, many years, because, you know, this is, if I really wanted to build a social media following, I would just do what uh, Congressman Joe Walsh does and just throw, you know, red meat. I just pander, you know, to my followers. I just tell them what they want to hear. Ukraine, good. Russia, bad. Uh, Zelensky, good. Putin, bad. I mean, this is a, the, the kind of complete nonsense that's being put out there that suggests this is, uh, you know, all black and white. It, it is not. What's interesting to me is that how many progressives, um, the very people who would lock you down for your own good, by the way, and insist you wear a mask that we know doesn't do a thing for you, um, for your own good, who would close your business for your own good, who would um, have you go around with a COVID 
passport, a China virus passport to allow you to get on a plane or enter a restaurant or, or even have a job. These are people now who are screaming for war. I mean, they're so excited about war. And I'm reminded of a photograph. Um, I've posted this on my social media taken in August of, um, I guess it, actually it must have been uh, September, maybe late August of 1914. It's a picture in Munich. It's a picture in Munich that's taken from, you know, from a building down on a crowd. And it shows a, um, a, a, a joyous, ecstatic crowd at the announcement at the announcement of the beginning of what would become World War One. Um, they're they're um, shouting uh, for joy at this. And in the crowd is a very young Adolf Hitler. And he, the look on his face is a face of ecstasy. It's a face of ecstasy. And these days, gosh, it feels like we're repeating this all over again and that, you know, some of the people on social media need to go and look at that picture and look for themselves in that crowd. But the little story I want to tell you is that recently I was in a, I was in a hotel um, working. It was, it was at night. There was almost no one around. And the hotel was, uh, the hotel restaurant was, was pretty empty. Uh, almost entirely empty and I go <clears throat> like that just like that a little you know throat clearing a cough and a guy from across the restaurant about 50 feet away shouts at me um, cover your effing mouth you effing piece of s now, I had not seen him there before. I had not engaged with him. He didn't know me from anyone. And he was an American, which, you know, had surprised me. But, of course, I was most greatly surprised to be, you know, verbally assaulted by a man who's nowhere near me. And then he starts ranting about, um, we're in a global effing pandemic, you effing and I, you know, I can't even, I don't even know how to say the uh, the next word abbreviated for you, but it was just, it was one vile profanity out of an, uh, um, after another, just pouring out of his mouth at me with such hostility and he didn't even know me. And um, I asked him, I mean, you're that afraid you're sitting all the way across, all the way across the restaurant from me. You don't even know me, but you're, you're that frightened. You're going to get something. You know, from me. Of course, I've just been tested for um for COVID because I couldn't even leave, you know, the country or enter that country without having um, a PCR test. But it didn't matter. There was no reasoning um, with this fellow, and he continued to shout. I did respond, and I respond responded vigorously. But I <laughs> I won't go into that. I don't respond well to bullies, and I won't be bullied. And um, and he left with his friends who said nothing. Now, here's what's interesting to me about that little story. I am quite certain, given his behavior and the things that he was shouting at me, he sees himself as virtuous. He sees himself as virtuous, and yet he's utterly full of hate for his fellow man. I had done nothing to offend him. I had not had a, you know, an interaction with him of any kind. Uh, he doesn't know me at all, but he begins just shouting abuse after abuse of those vile kind. Um, because I, I don't know, he's, he's from some blue state where perhaps people get away with doing things like that. Um, I, you know, where I'm from that, that sort of thing can get you into, uh, into real trouble. Um, and, and by that, I mean, fisticuffs. <laughs> I mean, I, I was ready to drag this guy outside and, and, uh, and, and beating to a pulp. But I'm just thinking, how do you somehow rationalize in your own mind that you arrive at a place where you're sure you're a very good and virtuous person because you care about humanity? 
But the fact is your heart is full of hate. And this is the kind of thing that we're seeing poured out towards all things Russian right now. I, a concert, you know, was canceled for Tchaikovsky. Tchaikovsky. Tchaikovsky um, predated the Russian Revolution. Um, Tchaikovsky had absolutely nothing to do with Bolsheviks, with Putin, with the invasion of Ukraine. But hey, okay, we'll hate Tchaikovsky now. I've seen all kinds of, of things being said similarly about we're canceling Russian literature. I would want to say if you had ever bothered um, to read, uh, say, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, you might have avoided being where we are right now because they predicted these kinds of things. But the hate that you're seeing um, being directed towards our fellow man is, uh, is quite alarming. It's quite astonishing. And these are the same people, by the way, who are calling for reparations um, for slaves. One of the same people who are wondering how we ended up with Japanese internment camps in World War II. Well, this is how. This is the way that happened because of this kind of hateful behavior where, where you can only see things in black and white and where your assumption is when the, immediate, when the media points you in a direction and tells you to hate someone, you immediately and unreservedly and gleefully do so. So that the man in the restaurant he hates me because in his mind, I'm a, um, you know, I'm, a, I'm an enemy of the people. I'm a, um, I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I'm a non-mask wearing um, super spreader um, to him. And this is, this is the, you know, the place where he's arrived. So ladies and gentlemen, um, you know, we'll end there. I, I do want to say this very quickly. Um, we will have joining the show with us soon in an event with Dr. Jay Smith. Dr. Jay Smith, some of you who have followed my work for a while will know Jay Smith. Jay is an, an, is an Islamic, it's tough to get that out of my mouth, an Islamic expert. And what is also being forgotten in all of this that's going on is Islam, which is a, a rising global threat and an increasing threat in the West. Jay, for 24 years, took on radicals in London, one of the most radicalized cities on the planet. And Jay is going to be here with us in a couple of weeks. We're going to get him on the podcast, but you'll also have the opportunity to hear him in person, and I'm pretty excited about that. But we hope you'll keep listening to the show, and um, it has been a pleasure to be with you. And so now I will turn it over to Dandy Don Meredith, who will sing for us, turn out the lights, the party's over. Turn out the lights, the party's over. They say that all. Ladies and gentlemen, we are grateful for the standing ovation, but there will be no encore for today's performance. Please exit the building in an orderly fashion. Thank you. Honey, can we leave now?